please stay tuned to the end of this program or see the show notes for important information regarding today's speakers and the content of this podcast. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Allergy Talk, a roundup of the latest in the field of allergy and immunology by the American College of Allergy, Asthma, and Immunology. For today's episode, we will be reviewing three more articles from the September-October 2020 issues of Allergy Wash, a bi-monthly publication which provides research summaries to college members from the major journals in allergy and immunology. You can also earn CME credit by listening to this podcast. All you have to do is navigate to our website. It's college.acaai.org slash publications slash allergy watch. And also watch out for a post on the ACAAI community on Doc Matter, where we can have key talk takeaways and an engaging question and answer session to have ongoing conversation about today's topic. So I'm happy to introduce you to another episode. My name is Jerry Lee. I'm one of the co-hosts of Allergy Talk. I'm an associate professor at Emory University School of Medicine, and I'm joined by my usual two co-hosts. First, Dr. Curavilla. Hi, this is Marin Curavilla, and I am an assistant professor of allergy at Emory University. And Dr. Feynman. Yes, this is Stan Feynman. I'm glad to be here. I'm the current editor-in-chief of Allergy Watch, and I'm in practice here in Atlanta at Atlanta Allergy and Asthma, and I'm a past president of the uh, college. So there was a lot of articles that are really interesting, and Stan, I think you've got a one that on a procedure we don't typically use, but I think we're always looking for more opportunities to expand our repertoire for asthma treatment. So you were going to talk a little about exhaled nitric oxide. So yeah, exhaled nitric oxide. In fact, we use this a lot before COVID, and now you know we we had to cut back since it's a you know expiratory uh, maneuver. But um, the title of the article is using fractional exhaled nitric oxide to guide step-down treatment decisions in patients with asthma. It was a systematic review and individual patient data meta-analysis. And it was published in the uh, European Respiratory Journal earlier this year, and it was reviewed by Brad Chips in uh, Allergy Watch. So this was a meta-analysis where they looked at both observational studies and randomized studies. Some of them were from U.S., some from uh, Japan, and some from uh, U.K. And we all know as a background that uh, asthmatic patients with high exhaled nitric oxide are at increased risk for flare-ups or exacerbations. It's unclear whether the exhaled nitric oxide, which we know is a measure of the interleukin-13-driven steroid responsiveness uh, airway inflammation, whether or not it's a useful guide for making reductions in inhaled steroid dosage. So this is the question that they had and they posed when they set up this meta-analysis. And this was really in adult patients. They were adolescents and adults and they had asthma and they received either low to moderate dose inhaled steroids and they all had exhaled nitric oxide measurements before the inhaled steroid dose reduction. And they had data on 384 participants from seven of these studies. They were included in this multi-level meta-analysis. And for the primary outcome exacerbations after 12 weeks after reducing your inhaled steroid dose. So the dose was dropped 
and then they measured it in 12 weeks whether they had an exacerbation. So in four of the studies, they had a 50% reduction in inhaled steroid dose while the inhaled steroid treatment was withdrawn totally in three of the studies. And then about half the patients, the exhaled nitric oxide was 20 parts per billion or less. And the rate of acute exacerbations within the 12 weeks of the step down was about 11%. So on meta-analysis, the patients with the baseline exhaled nitric oxide of 50 parts per billion or greater, they had a threefold increase in their threshold for exacerbation risk. The odd ratio was 3.08, and that translated into an estimated exacerbation risk cutoff of 15%. So if the inhaled steroid was stepped down at an estimated exacerbation risk of less than 15%, only 10% of the patients would continue on the same inhaled steroid dosage. But by comparison, stepping down the estimated exacerbation risk of less than 10% would result in 36.7% of the patients staying at the same dosage. So with either strategy, the large majority of patients would avoid exacerbations, 91% and 90% respectively, whether they dropped it or not. So the available evidence supports the use of the exhaled nitric oxide as a guide for inhaled steroid step-down decisions in patients with mild to moderate asthma and reducing the inhaled steroid dose when the excess in the exhaled nitric oxide is less than 50 parts per billion may reduce inhaled steroid exposure without increasing the risk for exacerbation. Obviously, we have to do larger, more prospective studies in the future, but Brad Chips pointed out here that he felt that the data can be used to help payers understand the need to cover exhale nitric oxide because it is an adjunct to the management of patients with significant reactive airways disease. And quite frankly, we used to use it and it did help us decide whether to step up the inhaled steroid dose or step down the inhaled steroid. So that was um, you know, the way we used it in our clinic. So here we have data to support it. And I think Brad's comments about, you know, maybe we can use this to help some of the payers who are not paying for it, pay for it because it is useful in the management. It's another objective measure to measure um, asthma inflammation. Yeah. My recollection is that exhaled nitric oxide took that huge blow with the original inner city asthma consortium study when they tried to add it to guideline-based therapy and they didn't see any reduction in exacerbations, but they saw more, you know, higher mean inhaled corticosteroid use. So I'm wondering maybe the way it was used to potentially increase inhaled steroid was not the right approach, but maybe using it for step down is the better approach. I wasn't sure if there, the way it was used in inner city asthma consortium is different by the philosophy used by the studies this paper analyzed. I can't talk to the uh, inner city data right now, but um, this is the kind of the way we use it in our in our practice. We were using it in our practice in terms of helping us to step down, you know, some of the patients. And anyway, we felt it was helpful. It'd be interesting to ask our listeners if they could make a comment at Doc Matters or give us some feedback on what their experience is with this. So yeah, just in my mind, exhaled nitric oxide is so exquisitely sensitive to inhaled steroids. So I would just interpret the result in conjunction with clinical history and spirometry as in just having a normal exhaled nitric oxide would only be an adjunctive reason to 
step down ICS therapy, but I would not base any decision on this value alone. But on the other hand, like if the pheno was greater than 50, I probably would not wean even if the patient was otherwise well controlled by like symptoms and spirometry. And, you know, we always want to try to step down on our patients, but obviously any information where we can protect them from a potential exacerbation, I think is definitely needed. So personally, I don't have exhaled nitric oxide offered in my clinic currently, but any ammunition I have to get more information, especially when parents are coming to me and they really are saying, well, my, my kid's great. Can, can I come down? We just want to do it in the safest way. And, and certainly, presently elevated, you know, would certainly make me immensely nervous and the data seems to support that. So I guess we can go to the next articles. Marin, we talked on the last episode about Ig production in ARD, but that was going after IL-5, but apparently just going after Ig can help as well? Possibly. So I chose this paper that was published in the American Journal of Respiratory and Critical Care Medicine and reviewed by Bradley Chips in Allergy Watch. It talks about the potential utility of omalizumab in aspirin exacerbated respiratory disease. And omalizumab has just been getting a lot of attention lately in the treatment of not just AERD, but nasal polyps in general, because first, the role of IgE in this disease process is being increasingly highlighted, as we discussed in our last episode. And second, the results of two phase three trials of omalizumab in nasal polyps were recently published. So this paper looks specifically at the effect of omalizumab in AERD, which is a syndrome that's characterized by the overproduction of cisnalubitrienes and prostaglandin D2. The same group out of Japan that published this paper had previously published data on AERD patients in whom Zolaire or omalizumab therapy for a year resulted in significantly reduced urinary excretion of leukotriene E4 and prostaglandin D2 metabolites. And the authors built upon this, these preliminary findings with omalizumab in a placebo-controlled double-blind study in 16 patients who were highly selected. They chose patients with non-obstructive spirometry and a mean blood eosinophil count of 370, so the milder ARD patients to allow for safe aspirin challenges. They designed the study to have two intervention phases, each of them lasted three months. And patients were assigned to intervention with omalizumab for three months or placebo for three months. And then they washed out for four months in between this treatment crossover. And at the end of three months, they performed an oral aspirin challenge and measured urinary leukotrienes and prostaglandin D2 metabolites. And this was the primary study outcome. So what they found was that when they did an aspirin challenge of patients with AERD after three months of omalizumab, there was no significant increase that would be anticipated with both urinary leukotrienes as well as urinary prostaglandin metabolites in 24-hour urinalysis as compared with controls or placebo. And 10 of these 16 subjects achieved the maximal aspirin dose of 930 milligrams without any aspirin-induced reactions. In contrast, while the patients were on placebo, they all predictably 
had aspirin induced reactions at doses ranging anywhere from 30 milligrams to 500 milligrams. And the mean percent fall in FEV1 was also significantly reduced with omalizumab treatment as compared to placebo. The authors also looked at the kinetics of omalizumab effects on urinary leukotriene E4 and prostaglandin D2 metabolites over three months. And they found significant reductions in urinary excretion of leukotriene E4 and prostaglandin D2 metabolites after starting omalizumab that were sustained all the way at the aspirin challenge three months later. And in summary, omalizumab therapy in aspirin exacerbated respiratory disease for three months suppressed aspirin-induced respiratory reactions and also suppressed the anticipated increase in urinary excretion of leukotriene E4 and prostaglandin D2 metabolites with aspirin. So the authors then tried to sort of use these findings to explain potential underlying mechanisms of AERD. We know that dysregulated mast cell activation is central to the pathogenesis of AERD. And the authors concluded that omalizumab may have inhibitory effects through IgE inhibition on ongoing mast cell activation. And this is supported by decreased prostaglandin D2 metabolites on therapy, which is a primary mast cell mediator. And high PGD2 expressors are recognized to be more resistant to aspirin desensitization. And this may be the reason why a protective response to omalizumab was found in only 10 of 16 enrolled patients against aspirin-induced respiratory reactions. And it just may be due to the fact that the remainder may have just had higher expression of PGD2 at baseline. Um, I thought the study was interesting because it was the very first double-blind placebo-controlled crossover trial in which both airway reactions to aspirin as well as measures of mast cell function were assessed. And just interestingly, there was this recent case series in Jackie in practice, where I think three AERD patients were treated with mepolizumab, and all three developed aspirin-induced reactions despite treatment, perhaps highlighting the role of mast cells and mast cell inhibition in acute respiratory reactions to aspirin. And just anecdotally, I have noticed in my practice that the couple of desensitizations that I have performed in patients with ARD on dipilumab have been uneventful. And one of these was a repeat procedure in a patient who had previously reacted when he had not been started on dipilumab. And this, again, could potentially be related to decreased mast cell activation on chronic dipilumab therapy. You know, we use the aspirin challenge to be diagnostic and therapeutic, but, you know, we always talk about risk. So when should we maybe think about protecting them with a biologic? I mean, we're now we're seeing maybe you're talking about maybe two potential biologics that makes it even a safer outpatient procedure that some people may be nervous to do initially. I don't know what your thoughts on that, Mary. There was, I think, a couple of editorials that were published in annals recently talking about the decision to pursue biologic therapy versus aspirin desensitization in patients with AERD. But in patients with who have especially recalcitrant disease and in whom aspirin desensitization may at baseline have been precluded by 
severe asthma or other comorbidities, I have been able to successfully desensitize under the umbrella of dipilumab. Did they have any reactivity whatsoever? Like what happened? They, they were fine, sealed through. You know, aspirin's cheaper than dupilumab and omeluzumab. <laughs> you know I mean? like, aspirin is cheaper, yes. No, and absolutely. It's not, but I just wanted to point out that the two are not necessarily mutually exclusive and there may be patients who would benefit from both. Oh, my suggestion is we bridge them to aspirin and then stop the biologic. I, I don't know what your thoughts on that. That's an interesting uh, idea. We obviously need more information, but uh, you know we can't use them yet now for these uh, for that indication. But I mean, we know that omalizumab has got some protective effect, and probably dupilumab too, to prevent even uh, IgE mediated anaphylaxis. So this is different. This is the uh, you know leukotriene driven, so uh, AARD type patient. So, but interesting. It's good to have this kind of information. I mean, just. Speaking out of ignorance, how many of your ARD patients are managed just based on aspirin alone and don't need a biologic as well? So in my practice, you know, obviously for years, we just used the, um, the aspirin. And then when we got omalizumab, we've added omalizumab. And interestingly, I've got a few patients, really just two that I, that I can recall off the top of my head, who were on omalizumab for aspirin-triggered uh, asthma. And we switched them recently to dupilumab because they were having breakthrough and they were also having uh, you know, their, uh, some nasal polyps coming back. And they feel it's been you know, a life changer. I mean, they've been able to reduce their inhaled steroid dose. So now this is you know, obviously not a complete study. It's just a case report, but uh, that was my, has been my experience. I don't know, Marin, if you had any thoughts on just, just managing with aspirin alone or some of these patients are probably going to need a biologic as well. So I, I do have a subset of patients that are managed with just aspirin alone, you know, either those who are post-surgery, those who are obviously like government insurances and might cannot prescribe a biologic, but a lot of my patients have other comorbidities. And so I usually go down the biologic route now, and that's just what patients prefer as well. Despite the newness of the biologic, the idea, I think the idea of being on 650 milligrams twice daily, high dose long-term aspirin is a little daunting. Oh, I see. No, it just makes sense. And you know, I don't want to ignore the side effects of the therapy either. I mean, certainly compliance issues, the commitment to do it, maybe cardiovascular side effects. I, I mean, you're right. We always have to weigh both sides there. But it'd be very interesting if those patients who were not able to desensitize, if we just give them a little bit of biologic, get them, get them under control, and then give them a pretty inexpensive medicine for long-term control versus something that's very expensive for long-term control. That'd be an interesting question I'd love someone to explore. I, I, I think it'd be great. And I, I agree because especially we have those patients who are exquisitely sensitive to aspirin where, and, you know, for instance, um, like I said, during the review, the patients who have extremely high levels of PGD2 at baseline and the ones whose FEV ones just drop with like 20 or 40 milligrams and then who you're, where you're unable to proceed. And so you just wonder whether treating these patients under the umbrella of a biologic would facilitate desensitization. Anyways, someone out there is going to work on it. I'm <laughs> sure. I'd, I'd love to see it. So um, I'm going to wrap this up by talking about 
the unified airway hypothesis. So we know that our role as allergist immunologists is the focus of the entire airway. And I'm not saying other providers don't treat, you know, or consider the association of asthma or sinusitis and their deep association. But I certainly, as immunologists, we greatly appreciate that. Certainly there's been very interesting studies that have seen changes in inflammation from nasal or bronchial installation and looking at the respective upper affecting lower and lower affecting upper that potentially the unified airway hypothesis is you know is a is a true statement that we really should consider the upper and lower airway as one organ so one of the ways that this study attempts to further explore the unified airway hypothesis is RNA expression. So what they did is they took four groups of children, about, they got about a little over 60 children. And these were children who were undergoing to go elective surgery for a non-respiratory disease. And so during the procedure, they did sampling of the upper way around the nasal turbinate. And then they also got tracheal sampling and they were able to do RNA extraction and therefore get a transcriptome profile of what genes were being expressed in the upper airway and the lower airway. And they had four groups. They had non-atopic children. They had children with wheeze without atopy, atopy without wheeze, and then both atopic wheezers. And so this is a great opportunity to ask a few questions. First, how much information can you get on the lower airway if you sample the upper? Because I think we would love information about the lower airway, but we're not going to bronch all these children and adults. It's very invasive. But we really would need to understand what's going on the lung, especially in the era of precision medicine. We would love to somehow do diagnostic testing based on biological information and what better information can you get than sampling of gene expression, potentially epigenetics, or so on, that potentially could be another piece of information, like we said before, such as exhaled nitric oxide and so on. So when they did the actual analysis of the transcription, there was about 16,000 genes they were able to identify in both sites, and 91% of them were homologous. That was very intriguing. About 91% of the genes expressed in the upper airway and lower airway are the same. And, you know, you could say, well, you know, that could just could be anything. So they actually did skin biopsy samples as sort of a control, and that was brings it down to 74. So certainly there is going to be some sort of housekeeping genes that are present in all parts of the body, but we're talking about 91% homology. Now, going a little bit further, they looked at the gene expression changes associated with wheeze and atopy. And what they found was, is that there are some very common genes that they could obtain from the upper airway that we associate with asthma. Some of the things would be ST2, that's the receptor for IL-33, the alarmant. They found eataxin 3 
expression, periosteum expression, right? We're using periosteum as a marker of IL-13, right? And then cyclooxygenase 1. So it's a potential method of obtaining biomarkers about the lower airway in a non-invasive fashion when we see that the transcriptome of the upper airway shares the lower. And, and, and it also reaffirms the approach of allergists and immunologists. You know, we certainly pay a lot of attention to control of both rhinosinusitis and asthma. And it's absolutely important that those both are addressed, both are evaluated, controlled because of that relationship, because of their unique concordance and therefore, again, controlling the entire uh, patient and addressing all potential comorbidities other than just giving inhalers and just neglecting other parts that could, again, help the patient. So I just thought it was very interesting that they have this proof of concept. I know that other people have gone in this direction. For example, my former research mentor, Neil Hershey, looked at emergency department admissions and you know, she looked at corticosteroid resistance and found Bannon-1 expression in the nasal epithelium seemed to be potential biomarker. So you know, people are already doing this nasal sampling, but it's good to reaffirm that this is actually a potential way that we can expand our ability to treat our asthma patients in a non-invasive fashion. So um, I hope to other researchers look into other ways that we can use expression and genomics to informed the bedside and precision medicine. We are actually doing this at Emory. We're using nasal tampons to collect uh, nasal lavage fluid and using that as uh, for transcriptomics and potentially extrapolation to the lower airways. Oh, that's so interesting. Um, Again, I I hope that something very simple is it, is that uh, how bothersome is the sampling process, by the way? I've had it myself and not really. That's better than a bronch. (laughs) <laughs> you know, as as the uh, person who's been in practice the longest here in our group, uh, I do remember in the 90s uh, when we kept talking about the United Airway and the fact that there were studies out there using nasal steroids and uh, patients who were on nasal steroids had better control of their asthma. In other words, they needed less medication. And we've been telling patients that for a long, long time. And, and now it looks like there's gene evidence that uh, gene expression evidence that this is a, a truly more than a hypothesis. And so uh, some of the things that we suggested you know, years ago and continue to suggest uh, look like they have some physiologic reasoning. So I'm glad that you all are studying it and we're learning more about it. And um, I think it's only gonna be beneficial for our patients. And so again, look out for further publications, a plug for Dr. Onyun Lee and other investigators who go further in this line of investigation. And again, if you have any comments or other thoughts about this podcast, as Dr. Farman mentioned, we are continuing these conversations on the Doc Matter website. And any ideas of other podcasts or feedback, please send to our email. It's allergytalk, one word, at acaai.org. And please remember, if you like what you're hearing, send us a rating on iTunes. And of course, tell us your thoughts and give us ideas for other episodes. So everyone 
stay safe, stay well. So good to hear from all, well, I haven't heard from all of you, but so good to have you spend time with us and we'll see you for the next episode. The ACAAI is presenting this podcast for educational purposes only. It is not medical advice or intended to replace the judgment of a licensed physician. The college is not responsible for any claims related to procedures, professionals, products, or methods discussed in the podcast, and it does not approve or endorse any products, professionals, services, or methods that might be referenced. Today's speakers have the following disclosures. Drs. Lee and Dr. Kangara have nothing to disclose, and Dr. Feynman has been a speaker for AZBI and Shire and has done research for AIMU, DBV, Shire, and Regeneron.